This is going to be the last episode of May and hopefully the last episode of a month-long fundraiser. We are within striking distance of my goal, so if you can chip in, please go to bestoftheleft.com and click the Climate Hike banner for details. Thanks so much. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today including a TED Talk by Colin Stokes, Citizen Radio, PBS Game Show, Counterspin, On the Media, The Majority Report, and Marina Shut Up on YouTube. You know, my favorite part of being a dad is the movies I get to watch. I love sharing my favorite movies with my kids. And when my daughter was four, we got to watch The Wizard of Oz together. Totally dominated her imagination for months. Her favorite character was Glinda, of course. Gave her a great excuse to wear a sparkly dress and carry a wand. But you know, you watch a movie enough times and you start to realize how unusual it is. Now, we live today and are raising our children in a kind of children's fantasy, spectacular, industrial complex. Um, but The Wizard of Oz stood alone. It, w- it did not start that trend. Uh, Forty years later was when the trend really caught on with, interestingly, another movie that featured a metal guy and a furry guy rescuing a girl by dressing up as the enemy's guards. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Now, there's a, a big difference between these two movies, a couple of really big differences between The Wizard of Oz and all the movies we watch today. One is there's very little violence in The Wizard of Oz. The uh, monkeys are rather aggressive, as are the apple trees. But um, I think if The Wizard of Oz were made today, the wizard would say, Dorothy, you are the savior of Oz that the prophecy foretold. Use your magic slippers to defeat the computer-generated armies of the Wicked Witch. Um, But that's not how it happens. Another thing that's really unique about The Wizard of Oz, to me, is that all of the most heroic and wise and even villainous characters are female. Now, uh, I started to notice this when I actually showed Star Wars to my daughter, uh, which was years later, and, and the situation was different. At that point, I also had a son. Uh, he was only three at the time. He was not invited to the screening. He is too young for that. Uh, but he was the second child, and the level of supervision had plummeted. <laughs> so uh, he wandered in, and um, it, it imprinted on him like uh, Mommy Duck does to its duckling. Is he picking up on the fact that there are only boys in the universe except for Aunt Beru and, of course, this princess who's really cool but who kind of waits around through most of the movie so that she can award the hero with a medal and a wink to thank him for saving the universe, which he does uh, by the magic that he was born with. Compare this to 1939 with The Wizard of Oz. How does Dorothy win her movie? By making friends with everybody? And being a leader. Like that, that's kind of the world I'd rather raise my kids in. Why is there so much force, capital F force, in the movies we have for our kids and so little Yellow Brick Road? I know from my own experience that Princess Leia did not provide the adequate context that I could have used in navigating the adult world uh, that is co-ed. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, there was a kind of first kiss moment when I really expected the credits to start rolling because that's the end of the movie. 
right? I finished my quest. I got the girl. Why are you still standing there? <laughs> the movies are very, very focused on defeating the villain and getting your reward, and there's not a lot of room for other relationships and other journeys. It's almost as though if you're a boy, you are a dopey animal, and if you were a girl, you should bring your warrior costume. I mean, that is... Uh, there are plenty of exceptions, and I, I will defend the Disney princesses in front of any of you. Um, but they do uh, send a message to boys that they're not, the boys are not really the target audience. I mean, they are doing a phenomenal job of teaching girls how to defend against the patriarchy, but they are not necessarily showing boys how they're supposed to defend against the patriarchy. There's no models for them. And we also have some terrific women who are writing new stories for our kids. And as three-dimensional and delightful as Hermione and Katniss are, these are still war movies. And, of course, the most successful studio of all time uh, continues to crank out classic after classic, every single one of them, about the journey of a boy or a man or two men who are friends or a man and his son or... Uh, two men who are raising a little girl. Um, until, as many of you are thinking, this year, when they finally came out with Brave. I recommend it to all of you. It's on demand now. Um, do you remember what the critics said when Brave came out? Oh, I can't believe Pixar made a princess movie. Now, almost none of these movies pass the Bechtel test. Alison Bechtel is a comic book artist, and back in the mid-'80s, she... Uh, <laughs> recorded this um, conversation she'd had with a friend uh, about assessing the movies that they saw. And it's very simple. There's just three questions you should ask. Uh, is there more than one character in the movie that is female who has lines? So try to meet that bar. And uh, do these women talk to each other at any point in the movie? And is there conversation about something other than the guy that they both like? Right? Thank you. Thank you very much. Two women who exist and talk to each other about stuff. It, it does happen. I've seen it. So let's, let's look at the numbers. 2011, the 100 most popular movies. How many of them do you think actually have female protagonists? 11. Um, but there is a number that is greater than this that's going to bring this room down. In uh, Last year, the New York Times published a study that the government had done. Here's what it said. One out of five women in America say that they have been sexually assaulted sometime in their life. Now, I don't think that's the fault of popular entertainment. I don't think... Kids' movies have anything to do with that. But something is going wrong. And when I hear that statistic, one of the things I think of is that's a lot of sexual assailants. Who are these guys? What are they learning? What are they failing to learn? Are they absorbing the story that a male hero's job is to defeat the villain with violence and then collect their reward, which is a woman who has no friends and doesn't speak. Are, are we soaking up that story? 
you know, as a parent with the privilege of raising a daughter, like all of you who are doing the same thing, we find this world and this statistic very alarming and we want to prepare them. We have tools at our disposal like girl power and we hope that that will help. But I got to wonder, is girl power going to protect them if at the same time, actively or passively, we are training our sons to maintain their boy power? And I'm talking mainly to the dads here. I think we have got to show our sons a new definition of manhood. Now, the definition of manhood is already uh, turning upside down. I mean, you've read about how the new economy is changing the roles of caregiver and wage earner. They're throwing it up in the air. So our sons are going to have to find some way of adapting to this, some new relationship with each other. And I think we really have to show them and model for them how a real man is someone who trusts his sisters and respects them and wants to be on their team and stands up against the real bad guys who are the men who want to abuse the women. And I think our job in the Netflix queue is to look out for those movies that pass the Bechdel test, if we can find them, and to seek out the heroines who are there, who show real courage, who bring people together, and to nudge our sons to identify with those heroines and to say, I want to be on their team because they're going to be on their team. When I asked my daughter who her favorite character was in Star Wars, do you know what she said? Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan Kenobi and Glinda. Now, what do these two have in common? I think these are the two people in the movie who know more than anybody else, and they love sharing their knowledge with other people to help them reach their potential. Now, they're leaders. I like that kind of quest for my daughter. And I like that kind of quest for my son. I want more quests like that. I want fewer quests where my son is told, go out and fight it alone, and more quests where he sees that it's his job to join a team, maybe a team led by women, to help other people become better and be better people, like the Wizard of Oz. So, Catherine, you sent me a story from scarymommy.com. Yes, and I want to make it very clear. I'm not making fun of mommy bloggers. Right, Because it's so easy to say, oh, look at what this woman wrote about her son. Right. This is more of a symptom of a larger problem. Yes. And basically what it is, it's called Boys Will Be Boys. Hold on, let me pull it up. Sure. And... uh, Already enraged. Yeah. And it's it's about how... uh, So it was posted on a, a Facebook feed, but the comments... This is the thing that I did not think about until I read somebody uh, who wrote this basically she's like he's a rough and tumble little boy but you know they need to express themselves and we can't try to constrain them and rough play should be encouraged and boys and girls are different blah 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 um 
she at one point says, hold on. I look over at my son and he's so happy. I can't help but wonder if rough and unrestricted play is simply inconvenient for adults. It's true. It can be messy. And rough and tumble does need to be monitored. Blah, blah, blah. Going on. She also says how like little girls are like, you know, too scared to play. Right. Whatever. And everyone's commenting and making fun of this mother, like, oh, that little angel. And this African-American woman gets on and she goes, yeah, this is the definition of white privilege. Yeah. If this kid were dark-skinned in a restaurant acting like him, he'd be called an animal or be shot. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is literally, this child is learning how to take over things, push people, do whatever the fuck he wants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, no, I think you should punish your children for playing rough. And, and like, sorry. I, I know a lot of uh, conservatives think liberals are always too extreme when we say it starts that young. But it really does. Cause, oh, I mean, sure. think back to your experiences on the playground, right? If a little boy pulled your hair or pushed you, people were like, oh, he likes you. Mm-hmm. And then if you cried, it was that you were being too hysterical and you should just ignore it. But nobody's ever telling the little boy you don't have the right to touch people if they don't want to be touched, you know? And then what happens years later? Right, exactly. And and I know people think that's an exaggeration, but I mean, our culture is just a series of experiences, right? And, and behavior like that snowballs. The more a little white boy is told, little cis white boy is told that, you know, he has the right to touch people. Um, no one can stop him. I yeah. mean, like, what kind of because a little a little boy of color is definitely being taught the opposite. Right. You you don't see that happening. Right. And also, um, you know, I know I know that some young kids can be violent and out in the landish, etc. I have a nephew. He's all over the place. Mm. But you have to teach them how to use the bathroom. You have to teach them how to act in public. Like this is just something that does need to be taught. Even if it's innate, it doesn't yeah, mean that and, that's and listen, what society. Kids you know. are smart. Like uh, I know parents would say like, Oh, five, six is way too young to teach them about agency and bodily autonomy. No, it's fucking no, not. It's nope. like, they exactly get that when you should be doing it. Exactly. When you, you know, have to move over on the sidewalk because a little white child, their parent doesn't make them move over or they're just like weaving and whatever. It's like, this kid, you can tell they've already learned that they're entitled to all of the space around them right. and that it's theirs to take. And it's like, <laughs> that just like gets worse and worse and worse as you get older. Yeah, and I feel the same way is like how we sort of instill people with um, higher status if they like play football or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, you know, when they segue from high school quarterback to college quarterback to NFL quarterback and literally people are figuratively and literally stepping out of their way and allowing them to do whatever they want, Mm -hmm. that sends a message to the entire culture. You know, not only are you male and therefore you have this privilege, but you also have this additional status as a professional sports player, you know, that you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And also Sally brings up a great point. I've no, I've been spending some time on the Upper East Side because that's where I work, you guys. Congratulations. Thank you. And <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I do know what it is. Uh, the kids are the least behaved yes. up there when their parents are they have rich. have to express and- themselves, Catherine. Exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, little Timmy's expressing himself. Right. Like, there were cool. two monsters uh, right here. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And like, you know, it's like talking back to their nanny and like who's like lugging a stroller (sighs) and also trying to open the door. And it's just like you, you know, the world is your, you're like three and Mm. you know that you're entitled to anything you want and you can get it anytime. And And you learn that from mommy and daddy. 
Yeah, and the world, and I, you know, the world around you is validating it. This is, again, conditioning that from day one, you know, boys will be boys, whether they're like pushing you on the playground or they, they want sex without consent. And to me, that's where this like mystified attitude comes from because they're like, but no one's ever told me I can't do whatever the fuck I want. Right. Especially like in a frat setting where oh they basically God. tell you, you're, you know, like, lions you can do you're in a pack you can do whatever mm-hmm. you want um a pride i'm sorry not a pack oh an, an angry email it. do you know what a group of unicorns is called what a blessing <gasps> isn't that amazing God, that's so perfect that is amazing trivia you guys good stuff uh yeah but to me like this all in, in my feminist conspiracy brain this all can be traced back to the same origin which is just teach little boys they can't do whatever the fuck they want to mm-hmm. do and women are human beings yeah. mm-hmm. just start it's so age simple age four age five and also don't teach young women boys will be boys yes yes busy right. like oh he did what to you okay well you tell an adult and then we deal with this yeah you know, as opposed yeah. to like oh don't worry honey yeah don't be know. dramatic he probably likes you <laughs> that whole oh, the guy who raped me likes me cool. right okay. no like yeah like the hair pulling or the being mean he likes you what yes. the fuck like what? and and like that seed planting that seed when boys hurt you they like you like that has why is that little boy told that he needs to find a different way to express his fucking affection right right what and that fuck? hurting people's not okay or cute or right. yeah boys being boys it's simple, right? And then they right? grow up to go to war and become presidents and kill them. No, it's just it's all part of the culture. Like, you grow up thinking you can do whatever you want. Yeah, and it's hard to explain that sort of ripple effect to people when, like, you know, the MRAs are rolling their eyes and they're like, oh, rape culture, in air quotes. And it's like, no, literally, mm-hmm. this is everywhere and it starts when boys, like, pop out of the, the womb, you know? Like, that's how early it starts. If video games' treatment of women and female characters is problematic, then the ones depicting men should be okay, right? I mean, 89% of game designers and 97% of game programmers are men. Maleness is not exactly foreign territory. But if we take a closer look, things aren't always so hot for us fellas. For a couple reasons. Let's start with the physique. Obviously, female bodies are ridiculous, but male ones are too. Let's do a brief survey. Kratos? Check. Duke Nukem? Check. Chris Redfield? Check. Coltrane, Dom, and Marcus? Check plus. Just like Barbie has physically impossible female proportions, if these guys were real people, they'd look like this. Now maybe you don't think it's such a big deal to show muscle-bound guys in game after game, but in aggregate, it's not without an effect. Men are starting to suffer the same body image problems that have plagued women for decades. An estimated 10 to 15% of the people who suffer from anorexia or bulimia are men. And sadly, that number of men is on the rise. There's an even more male-specific disorder called muscle dysmorphia, or bigorexia. It's overexercising and steroid abuse in an unhealthy pursuit of some imaginary, perfect, muscular body. 
and unfortunately, it's also on the rise. And with games, as much as their outside physique is overdeveloped, their inside emotional world is underdeveloped. Macho Man and video games have a tiny emotional range and seem to be largely invulnerable to feelings like fear, trauma, or the crushing guilt of killing thousands of people. And when it comes to emotional expression, games tend to pull from the John Wayne handbook. Master Chief, Isaac Clarke, and Gordon Freeman are all short with words. Hell, Doom Guy doesn't even have a name. Now to be fair, certain games have gotten better about giving their protagonists reasons for their actions, which makes them feel less like atrocity committing robots. Joel, from The Last of Us, has one of the most poignantly fleshed out backgrounds in all of gaming, but that hardly justifies what a murderous psychopath he becomes as the game progresses. And like Joel, men are expected to lead, even when they've suffered. Booker DeWitt may be scarred from the Civil War, but a little PTSD doesn't stop him from saving Elizabeth. Even two of my favorite games, Ico and Enslaved, find their tortured protagonists in positions of strength, not weakness. Men are always expected to be the hero, no matter what. But there's something much deeper that's actually more problematic. In fact, it's so glaringly obvious that you probably don't even notice it. Let's stop talking about the main character for a moment and take a look around at our virtual world. In games that feature people, who gets killed? It's men. It's almost always men. And who gets placed in the line of fire? Men also. If we flipped the genders and had a game where you killed woman after woman after woman with nary a man in sight, people would probably get a little upset. And with good reason. But maybe you're saying, what's so bad about killing other men? Who cares if we're acclimated to seeing thousands of men die over and over again in games? Who cares if the vast majority of men are expected to be disposable? Well, maybe now's a good time to stop and think about what that disposability actually means. In The Myth of Male Power, former National Organization of Women board member Warren Farrell says that men have been systematically trained to sacrifice their health, their bodies, and ultimately their lives without question for the good and protection of women and children. And historically speaking, there's good reason for this. If you had a tribe of 200 people split 50-50 between men and women, and you lost 75% of the men to fighting with neighboring tribes, then you could still repopulate your society. But if you lost 75% of the women, then you're going to have a really tough time getting your society back on track. So from a purely biological perspective, it's easy to understand why women are more important to protect than men who, well, as a group are just expendable. And this idea of the expendable male has been going on for so long that we don't even bat an eye when we spend hours mowing down dudes in games. Now I don't believe Pharrell's conclusion that patriarchal societies benefit women at the expense of men. But that observation about male disposability certainly rings true for the current state of games. I want to be clear. This isn't a pissing contest about who has it worse, men or women. And it's certainly not a sermon against violent games. You can see my thoughts about violent video games here. But think about it this way. As with women, we should think about the impact that men in games has on men in the real world. It could be unreasonable body expectations, or an inability to express emotion, or the pressure to man up and be a leader. We gonna whoop your mama's ass! The reality is that in real life, gender roles are changing. We don't live in that same small tribe of 200 people anymore. Where once men were only required to be stoic soldiers and solo providers, now they're also expected to be involved fathers and supportive partners. And this is on top of the amazing strides that women have made in the home and in the workplace over the last half century. This is all wonderful progress, and games should reflect that broader shift. And there are, of course, signs of hope. Unlike his strong, fearless brother, Luigi successfully trembles his way through Luigi's Mansion Dark Moon. 
And in Heavy Rain, architect Ethan Mars experiences profound emotional conflict about the violent things he has to do to save his son. Video games are a way to explore other identities in a fun, safe way. Shouldn't games point to the way things should be, rather than just the ways they've always been? A collection of short stories published by an entertainment lawyer made the front page of USA Today's money section on January 4th. Why? Well, the startling thing about the book, according to USA Today media writer Michael Wolf, is that it deals with, quote, one of the least popular media subjects, middle-aged white men. Close quote. Yes, white men have stories to tell too, is the headline on that column by Wolf. Now you might think if you wrote about media for a living, you would notice that publishers mostly publish and newspapers mostly review books written by white men. A few years back, Ruth Franklin at the New Republic found that the authors at eight out of 13 book publishers she surveyed were 75% or more male. At none of the houses were most of the writers female. Writer Roxane Gay calculated that 88% of the books reviewed in the New York Times are written by white authors. As Gay noted, those numbers are depressing, but not really surprising in a media universe where white men predominate in nearly every countable category. Yet, USA Today's Wolf appears to live in a world where what might be called white man's media, as he put it, is, quote, a lost form or marginalized genre, close quote. It's a world where, quote, fiction is now largely a form dominated by women readers and hence women's stories, close quote. And it's a world where, of all cultures, quote, the middle-aged, culturally undistinguished American male is now the most overlooked, close quote. You can almost hear his heart break as he declares it's a world where success robs you of the right to express yourself. As far as we can tell, he's completely serious. Express yourself. Express yourself. You don't never need help from nobody else. The Hugo Awards are the highest honor in science fiction writing. 
This year, more than 2,000 ballots nominated the Hugo Award finalists and most voted in concert with two conservative camps who call themselves the Sad Puppies and the Rabid Puppies. They contend that the Hugo Awards have fallen prey to a liberal elitist agenda. In a recent interview, Larry Correa, who helped assemble the Sad Puppies and named them, said he had to organize against the clique dominating the Hugos because it would never let him win because of his pro-gun and conservative beliefs. A big clique of people talking about how, well, you know, we're never going to read him. He's evil. He's bad. He's a horrible person. You know, we can't have horrible people like this be recognized. He's going to end literature forever. You know, it was, it was absurd. <laughs> but I mean, I come from a, a political background where you don't put up with that crap. You fight it. So Correa and others got together to vote as a body on a chosen slate of relatively obscure nominees to make a point. And it worked. Many science fiction fans and writers, including George R. R. Martin, say the prize has been broken beyond repair, vanquished by politics. Arthur Chu, an actor, writer, and serious science fiction fan, says that the puppies freaked the Hugos, a practice of biasing polls that dates back more than a decade. Freeping refers to the name of the website The Free Republic, the right-wing political site notorious in the past for sending groups of its members to flood polls and comment sections to provide the appearance of a very strong right-wing majority. They would say, freep this poll and just have everyone descend on it at once. And we've seen Stephen Colbert do similar things in messing with Wikipedia. With Wikipedia, with getting a bridge in Hungary named after himself or a module of the ISS, a lot of people don't realize that when he was leveraging his fan base to pull these pranks, he was specifically referencing something that right-wing personalities on the Internet had been doing in earnest. So relate this freeping to the Hugo Awards. You can pay 40 bucks, join WorldCom, the Science Fiction Association, and vote for a nominee. That sounds very democratic. Right. They've just always trusted in the past that the people who are willing to pay $40 are the people who are most invested, who have read the most during the past year, and who have the strongest, you know, best informed opinions. But that makes it very vulnerable to being gamed by people who also are willing to pay $40 because they have a political axe to grind, especially because the Hugo voting has two phases, nomination and then final voting. In nomination, any work during the whole year is eligible. So that means that people voting in good faith, not coordinating with each other, are very likely to pick a wide array of different choices, which means even a very small group that is coordinating with each other can easily dominate the nomination phase by all nominating the same set of works, and that's what's happened this year. Isn't that what happened in 1987 when the Church of Scientology engaged in a similar tactic and signed up en masse to cast their votes for L. Ron Hubbard, who then made it onto the ballot but lost the award? Right. The difference is with the Church of Scientology and with other authors in the past who've gotten their fans to put them on the ballot, it's always been about putting one book that everyone was backing or one person. They would be up against four other people in the finals, and then people could make a fair choice between them. What has happened this year is instead of doing that, they've coordinated to nominate the same slate across the board so that the whole category is made entirely of their candidates and everyone else is crowded out. And that, that leads to some pretty ridiculous results, like three of the candidates for best novella being written by the same person, John C. Wright. 
Aha. So who is John C. Wright? He was best known originally as the author of the novel The Golden Age, part of the trilogy The Golden Acumen, a big ideas science fiction writer with right-wing political leanings. At some point, he started becoming better known for his political views than his writing. He went on a rant about how the sci-fi channel was contributing to the fall of civilization by including more gay and lesbian characters on their shows. And over time, he has gotten more and more strident with putting his political views in the work. Like the Miss of Everness series interrupts what's a supposedly uh, a fantasy story taking place in a dream world to talk about why America should go back on the gold standard or why we should have nuked Moscow in the Cold War. The works that are nominated for the Hugo this year are works that I would bet very few people have read because they were published in ebook form by a micro-publisher based in Finland called Castalia House. Why did the sad and rabid puppies pick Castalia House? Well, Castalia House is owned by a guy named Theodore Beale, who goes by the pen name Vox Day, the only regular member of the science fiction and fantasy writers of America to be expelled from the organization. Why? He was expelled because he used the uh, science fiction and Fantasy Writers of America Twitter to post a link to a blog post where he called an African-American author, N.K. Jemison a half-savage. He was making the argument that people of other races are, you know, not fully civilized and that therefore they're not capable of doing the work necessary to sustain a genre of literature like science fiction, that white men created the genre and white men have to continue to sustain it. He's the guy who said that the Taliban's shooting of Malala Yousafzai was perfectly rational and scientifically justifiable. You say that Vox Day is on pretty much every list there is of hate speech radicals on the Internet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's quite likely if you have a work filter on your computer that his blog will be filtered out. It's yeah. on several such lists. So his publishing house got nine nominations through this sort of freeping enterprise. Yes, plus a 10th nomination for Vox Day himself as best editor. You've likened the sad and rabid puppies to Gamergate, which refers to a very mm. active group of video game fans battling what they see as the same liberal feminine creep into their medium. They send death threats to female game designers. They harry female game reviewers offline. Are they, in fact, the same people? Some of them are the same people. Vox Day, in particular, is in pretty much every one of these movements. The two things that are the same within this movement and other similar movements are, like, one, this sense of entitlement that so-called gamers think that the whole medium of interactive computer entertainment belongs to them because they were there first. They're the core audience. And it's the same kind of elitism in the Sad Puppies movement. It's a weird thing. They talk about being populist, but when, when they talk about what really makes them mad about the elite they think run things now, it's always, oh, they don't know Asimov, they don't know Heinlein. The repeated refrain is Robert Heinlein couldn't win a Hugo today because he was too politically conservative. And it's really just that the genre as a whole has moved beyond people like Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov, and yet they're convinced that if you don't know this canon, you're not really a science fiction fan. You suggest that the fervent hate of disco by rock-loving young white men in the 1970s was sort of a precursor to what we're seeing now. Tell me about Disco Demolition Night. 
Right. That was a riot that took place in Chicago. This was on July 12th, 1979. Mm-hmm. There was a local DJ who was riling up anti-disco sentiment for fun, for ratings, getting his listeners to like go to disco concerts and yell stuff at the stage. And eventually, you know, they gathered all these disco records, piled them up and blew them up with explosives. People have stories about being beaten up because they listen to disco. You don't get that level of vitriol just from like simple musical taste. It stands for something else. Disco was music that was embraced by the gay community. Disco was music that was embraced by the black community. Disco was music that was seen as, you know, less American, less masculine. The backlash, the anger when a culture starts changing and it's changing in favor of some minority group that you feel like what you have is being threatened. And often it's coded in gender. Disco is girly. These new indie games, the core gamers don't like, they're girly. They're games about relationships and they're games about, you know, literary metaphors and poetry. And the fear of emasculation is such like a central psychological thing in these backlashes. It has to be something that deep. And the fear of emasculation runs pretty deep in our culture in order to evoke that kind of violence. Cameron Hurley, a Hugo winner and frequent nominee, noted that last year, work by women and people of color swept the Nebula Awards in addition mm-hmm. to the Hugos. And mm-hmm. partly that's because our demographics are shifting and our politics are too. For instance, 61% of young Republicans favor gay marriage. But Hurley mm-hmm. says that the sad puppies and their counterparts in gaming and comics still matter despite these demographics because those genres explore what possible world we could build. Right. Science fiction is supposed to be a genre about the future, but so frequently it's about our anxieties about the future and trying to cling to the past. If you read a lot of golden age science fiction, it's about positing a world where we have spaceships, where we have, you know, faster than light travel and artificially intelligent computers, but women are still the secretaries and men are still the adventurers. These social things, gender roles, social class, capitalism don't change. It's just the trappings of our technology change. Genuine social change is actually actively scary to a lot of people who like the science fiction genre because of its message of stability, of unchangingness, ironically enough. We can see it as a, as a symbol for what's going on across culture generally. What is the next thing that's going to go? In Gamergate, they keep talking about spreading to other media, you know, Comicsgate, Metalgate, about heavy metal music. They do see it as an all-encompassing culture war. This movement of puppies presents themselves as underdogs. And maybe it's because last year women and people of color swept the science fiction awards. Maybe they are the underdogs because they can't win. You know, they can destroy every award that can be freaked. But fundamentally, culture is going to be decided by groups of people in the marketplace who far outnumber these engaged communities. But at the same time, they can do a lot of damage in the short term. Loud, powerful, scary voices can intimidate people. Comics was stuck in that mode for a long time. All the time, people who were in charge in comics were like, this industry can't survive if it's the same small clique of, you know, aging white men who have read comics since they were kids. We've got to get new blood. Meanwhile, they have this instant outcry from the old hardcore fans that kind of got a death grip. 
But now you have a Jewish thing and you have a black Captain America and a disco song recently at the top of the charts. Won the Grammy for best song. Yeah. Um, and we've got a Muslim woman, Ms. Marvel, is the best-selling comic book right now. So these things change. You hit a turning point at some point. In a sense, they are the underdogs. In another sense, they're just being asked to share, to acknowledge they're a minority. It's not like what they want will disappear. I can go get old school comics about guys blowing things up easily now. It's just that that's increasingly a niche. They don't own the whole market. And the fear of being irrelevant is, I think, the thing that drives them, not the fear of not having something to read. I don't want to wait. Patriarchal life, you're out of date. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. Yeah, anyway, um, no, I was just saying, like, there's, there's a lot of these people that have this overreaction to anything that they perceive to be a feminist issue, and I just don't get it. Like, I don't understand, you know, like, the recent thing with the guy's shirt at the, you know, the space thing. I don't understand why people, like, if someone writes an article that says, uh, you know, the, the, the shirt is problematic, I don't have this really negative action. I don't, like, freak out because maybe I don't agree with the article. I don't have to start a hashtag about it. I don't have to post image memes about it. You know what I'm saying? What, what's the shirt story? I don't know that story. The shirt thing was the guy that, like, landed the cop, uh, the rover on the comet or whatever that thing was. Oh, oh, the Rosetta Stone thing. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So he... Yeah, yeah okay. And it was a tacky shirt. And uh, there were some people that said that the shirt was uh, sexist. Um, right. You know, the thing is that I, I don't necessarily agree with those people, but I also don't have this really negative reaction that a lot of assholes have, basically. So you're asking, like, why do people, why is it anytime there's an issue that involves women or feminism, there's such a total meltdown online, basically? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's like, they call, they call people, like, social justice warriors, but there seem to be the people that always want to have a fight. Mm. What do you think, Matt? This is your beat. I mean... Something I've noticed. And, uh, yeah, no, yeah, I, I, I think yeah. we all notice it. I mean, yeah. especially working in this business. Uh, but I think what he was saying was like basically that um, why is it that any time 
there is like apparently like you know he brought up the the Rosetta Stone shirt guy. Uh, oh, okay. I Actually, I was going to talk about that later in the show. Right. Well, we'll yeah. get to that. Yeah. So okay. So, but basically, I think just just well, you'll do the whole story, but just yeah. so people know what we're talking about, why don't you tell them the or whatever? The point is, is that every time someone writes an article on anything to do with a woman's issue, there is not only disagreement there's like a there's like a meltdown and i guess he was wondering i guess the point he was making was like hey i could disagree with any number of things but i don't have to have like a a tantrum anytime i see something that involves yeah, like a I feminist said, I mean, issue I, I agree with like it's just a bizarre like it's just it's to me from just looking at the most recent things that came up like you know gamergate mm-hmm. and this whole scientific sh- sh- shirt thing it's it's like literally guys don't like that women's opinions are now seeping into what used to be their space that's yeah. how i look at it there's probably yeah that, i that mean makes sense. of course yeah. there's always been gamer girls and of course there's always been women in science but they they are like like i like you know, you literally can point them out on a – make a poster with just, just the ones that people talk about, mm-hmm. whereas there's hundreds of thousands of men in science who people cite, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I really do think that's basically what it comes down to. It's, it's a boys' club that's no longer becoming a boys' club, and you're getting these voices. I mean, like they always say, when someone starts to uh, – the, you always hear the loudest voices when they start to lose. You know, They, they realize their, their culture or their industry is no longer catering just to them and uh, catering to their every whim, and they don't like it. It's, it's bothering them that, you know, why can't I wear a shirt with half-naked ladies on it on television while I'm representing the scientific community? Oh, what? No. I mean, that's literally what it is, though. You know, why, why – who is this woman think she is critiquing my video games? She doesn't have the right. She is not a true gamer. I mean, it's the no true Scotsman thing when it comes down to, you know, no. Oh, real- I don't want to hear about that. That, that, uh, I, I'm glad I don't even know what that is, but every time people would, I got a lot of tweets about that with the Sam Harris debacle, but I, I, no, I, I get what you're saying. No, but that's what it is. I mean, you know, but I, I also think, I mean, I'm sorry, what are you no, continue, what you're saying? Continue. I guess I, I also think, see, I think what's really tricky, any, especially when you're involved in doing work for social justice and reform, basically, is you, uh, and again, I, I used this example a couple of weeks ago, but I, I think you, it kind of helps to, to broaden the scope of these things. So it's not just these sort of things that are really hot or triggering or in the news cycle or whatever. But when, when they studied Reagan Democrats in the 80s, right? And Reagan Democrats were these people who, you know, it's self-explanatory term. They were Democrats who voted for Reagan. But a lot of them, they weren't like, you know, high-earning Democrats who maybe just wanted to get a tax cut. These were people who really were going to get they were going to feel the pinch from all the things Reagan was doing to the social safety net and to the economy, just like people now who, you know, earn less and vote Republican. And what they found when they studied them was, you know, and, and these were definitely white people, was that they, they did actually have a really strong skepticism about business and the corporate sector, but they felt powerless to do anything about it. 
And they did feel some power over basically people who they perceived as lower than them on the totem pole. And that's, you know, a really negative version of it. But I, I think what, what I noticed, cause we got a couple of emails about Gamergate. Okay. Um, you're just adjusting the camera. Yeah. We got, a, we got a couple of, we got a couple of, uh, of, of emails about Gamergate. And I, and I, I try to, because especially for me, you know, I know, cause I'm a total outsider to it. So I, you know, I think it's funny. It's like, whatever, like, you know, get a life. Like, I, I'm sorry, you know, that, that's where I'll go joke wise. Like, go take, you know, go take a run, as I always say. But some people were writing in and you could tell it's like, you know, I, I guess the point I'm trying to get to is how do you tell somebody that, of course, in a social, economic, and political sense, they have a lot of privilege, but they personally and psychologically don't feel any privilege in their lives, right? They feel like they're socially marginalized. They don't have, you know, they don't have that many friends. They don't really have much going on. Maybe they don't have great prospects in today's job market. Maybe they don't have a lot of stuff going on. So I think what is going to, I mean, I think part of it is definitely what you're saying, which is just like, hey, you're privileged in a certain space. And when that privilege gets undermined, there's a reaction to it. And that's definitely a big part of what's happening. But I also think that the other thing that's going on is that there's there's going to be a way of figuring out the language of talking to people about the privilege they do have, but they actually don't feel an experience in any way that's tangible to them. And that's a, that's a very, you know, it's a very subtle point, but I do think that there's there's something there that cuts across a whole range of issues that are much bigger than Gamergate. Oh, you know, like, well, yeah, like that, these are like the economics. Listen, if, these if are the just real. About, if this was just about video games. No, no, I know, but I'm saying, but it goes, ship. no, of course, but it goes, you know, it goes to people's voting patterns. It goes to people, you know, there's a lot of people, frankly, who, you know, whether it's like a, you know, some isolated kid who has an outlet in video games or even someone who, frankly, you know, some, you know, generic privileged white dude who's underwater on two mortgages, they don't want to hear about their privilege. They want to hear about how their lives are going to get better. And you do that in a way that talks about everybody's life getting better. And that does implicate some of the privileges they have. But if you just come at them with, here's another thing that you sort of suck about, that's a, that's a, that's a problematic, it's problematic messaging. So it's, it's a hard, it's, a, you know, so these are some of the things you kind of sell. We have one more call. Let me take it and then we'll, or sorry. You no, were, I, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah. you know, another thing that, that, you know, when, when speaking to so, privilege, yeah. you know, like in an issue like this where like, you know, a, a woman writer will, will write about this shirt gate thing or whatever it's being called. Right. And Tom just changed the camera here. And, um, you know, they, they bring it up and then, you know, other women may come out and say, oh, I don't have a problem with it. And men will cite those women as, see, well, that's women, not your women, shield. women don't, yeah, yeah, women don't have a problem with it. But you see, the fact that there are women who are speaking out saying, I have a problem with this, that shows that there are women who have a problem with it. I mean, I don't understand this whole, you know, just because we find scattered pieces of, you know, a scattered person here, a scattered person there, scattered pieces of opinions that agree with you, that... That somehow invalidates other people. You know, in this case, other women are invalidated. There, other women are invalidated because completely separate women have different opinions. Like it doesn't make sense to me. Well, I mean, but that's that's like a classic 
you know, that's the reason why, you know, you're always looking for, you know, frankly, like, a, you know, and I mean, look, yeah, there's a big market for people who will deliver your message. You know, that's why the, you know, the search for African-American Republicans, there's nothing particularly, I mean, I would say you just have the courage of your convictions. If you dis, if you don't buy something, you disagree with something, say it. But the other, I mean, the other part that's missing in all of this process is is really just any kind of basic empathy and curiosity about somebody else's experience, and that's that's what I find most frustrating. Fridays, a series where we explore the social, the political, and the media from a feminist and intersectional perspective, and use a lot of F-words. On today's episode of Feminist Fridays, we're going to be discussing the patriarchy, which I think is fitting for Halloween, because it's so scary. What is the dreaded patriarchy? In the simplest terms, patriarchy is a social system that values masculinity over femininity. This type of social system dictates that men are entitled to be in charge and dominate women, and it implies that the natural state of gender relations is a dynamic of dominance and submission. According to patriarchal society, women are seen as weak, submissive, and an extension of men, and the highest accomplishment a woman can hope to attain is marriage, heterosexual, of course, and child birthing. Fun. On the reverse end of the spectrum, men are expected to be physically and emotionally strong, dominating, and the breadwinner and protector of his family. Although the domination of women today might not be as bad as, say, a couple hundred years ago when women had no legal rights and were considered their husband's property, or even as bad as something you'd see on an episode of Mad Men, gender is still something that is strictly enforced on people today. In patriarchal societies, cisgender men are typically valued over cisgender women. However, this system forces people into strict boxes called gender roles, and gender roles hurt everybody. If someone who is assigned a certain gender at birth doesn't fit into the social norms expected of that gender, they're often ostracized by society. In the past hundred years or so, we've seen a loosening of gender roles for women, but not so much for men. Women can act or dress in a more masculine fashion with less repercussions than if a man were to act or dress in a feminine way. This stems from the valuing of feminine traits over masculine traits and the association of femininity with weakness. Femininity. That is the hardest word to say. It's more okay for a woman to act like a man, or whatever that means, than it is for a man to act like a woman. However, the patriarchy doesn't just harm cis women and cis men. It also hurts trans identities and anyone who doesn't identify with the gender binary. Being transgender is almost like the ultimate slap in the face to patriarchy and gender roles, because you're stepping outside of the gender that you were assigned at birth and saying, fuck that. A lot of transphobia that we see is based 
based in sexism and the fact that someone is refusing to stay in the gender box that society put them in. Can we talk about the harmful things that the patriarchy perpetuates? Because there are a lot of them. Women are less likely to hold positions of power. There are only 27 female CEOs in the Fortune 1000, and only 18.5% of Congress is occupied by women. And you might say that more women should run or start their own company, but that's ignoring the reality that women have to face large amounts of discrimination and harassment simply because their gender is seen as less powerful or less credible. And the women that do gain positions of power often have to assert masculine qualities in order to be respected in their position. Women are more likely to be sexually assaulted than men. Women generally do much more of their share of parenting than men do because of gender expectations, often while also working a job. However, men face negative consequences of the patriarchy too. They're expected to be the provider of their family and face the pressure of being financially supportive. The patriarchy perpetuates the idea that women need the protection of men, which is one of the ways in which the patriarchy actually disadvantages men. At many points in time, men have been legally forced by drafts to fight in wars and risk their lives. As for women, they've been actively discouraged by a society that doesn't see them fit for combat from enlisting in the military. And the women that do are harassed, demeaned, and even sexually assaulted simply for having the audacity to think they can do the same jobs as men. Women are also less likely to be seen as criminals and are incarcerated at lower rates than men. This is because women aren't seen as dangerous, and when they are convicted of crimes, the defense claims that they must be mad because they're going against their natural womanly instincts. It's also important to know that patriarchy isn't solely male-perpetuated. Just like how everyone is negatively affected by the patriarchy, the patriarchy is perpetuated by everybody. Nobody is outside of societal influence, and we've all been socialized to have patriarchal views of gender and how people should be. What's important is that we actively challenge these views instead of just accepting them and work to make society a little bit better. Hey Jay, this is Ruben from San Jose. Calling about your last episode, what you were what you were describing at the end as like things that people imagine are real, and you brought up human rights. I wanted to bring up the concept of human nature. How like neocons will argue that it is in human nature to like oppress each other, to establish hierarchies of dominance, or they try to use human nature as a justification for things like uh, patriarchy or, you know, various forms of oppression. I've heard it argued many times that, you know, just, it's, it's basically a lazy way, right, of being uncritical about how we could establish a more fair and balanced social model, one in which we were more respectful of each other and less discriminatory. Neoconservatives just tend to fall back on it as like, you know, oh, well, it has to be this way because... human nature but it's not necessarily within our nature my roommate actually brings up some interesting concepts about how maybe we've come from chimps maybe we've come from bonobos and like chimps are more apparently chimps are more aggressive and they have a higher likelihood of establishing 
you know, those problematic models, which sort of maybe could be seen as mimicking the oppression that humans enact upon each other. On the other side of that, if we have descended from bonobos, then it may very well be in our, like, biological nature to establish, you know, more fair and balanced social models, as apparently bonobos do. They're more, they're more of like a sharing species. But in general, I think it's just like people fall back on human nature because they want to see a reason for why things are the way they are. What's more is that a lot of the times people are justifying their own privileges under the system by saying it is within human nature because it serves them well and in a way where they don't have to feel as guilty about the position that they occupy in society and the gross iniquity that they contribute to by merit of their trying to justify uh, capitalism. Thanks for taking the message. Love the show. Hey Jay, what's going on? It's Chris from Colorado Springs. Um, I'm calling in response to your education episode that you just put out and um, I really enjoyed it and it's very germane to what's going on in my life right now because I just graduated college and I'm starting teaching uh, here coming up in August. And, you know, I, I agree with everything that most of the people said. I think that high-stakes testing is bad for kids, it's bad for educators, it's bad for schools. Test results shouldn't be tied to teacher pay. I agree with all those things. But I had a question just, you know, for, for progressives in general, which is what, what's the solution? Like, what's, what's the progressive alternative? Because I, I kind of understand how we got into this mess. You think about how our, you know, back in the 80s, our educational standards were pitted against the world's and we saw we were really kind of lacking uh, really really way far down on the list on a lot of metrics and so you know, there was a push in education to try to get standards equal across the board and if you think about that that's kind of a progressive idea right we're about fairness we're about equality for everybody whether you're a rich white kid in upstate New York or, or a poor child of color in you know downtown Chicago we want you to have the same Education. We want you to learn the same things. We want you to be able to produce the same type of educational material. Well, how do you ensure that that happens? You ensure that happens through evaluation. You have to test the kids to see that they've actually retained what we've taught them. Now, that has turned into a complete ugly monster of you know, teacher pay and ramifications for students. And I agree that it shouldn't be making money for people. Uh, there shouldn't be a profit incentive on that. I, I agree with all that. But as an educator, like how do we evaluate our kids in a way that's fair, in a way that actually does test whether or not me as a teacher, I'm doing my job, are they learning? Or if they're not learning and retaining the information I'm teaching them, what can I do to, to change that? And so to, instead of using it as a, a critical yardstick and then using that stick to then beat upon the students and the teachers, using it more as just straight up an evaluation and then looking at the results, looking at the data, and trying to glean insights onto how we can improve. But as far as wholesale reform, you know, I'm all for the opting out. I'm all for not attaching these things to teacher pay, but I haven't yet heard, and honestly I haven't done a lot of research into it, a well-articulated progressive argument for what we would replace it with. Because if we just remove all standardized testing, and then we're going to have the inequality in education that was the whole reason these tests were put in place to combat to begin with. And I know no progressive wants that. We want all of our kids to get the same education, as close to the same education as we possibly can. And the only way to do that, at least it seems, is some unifying connection, be it standards, be it evaluation, be it something, 
to make sure that poor rural kids are getting the same education as rich suburban kids or poor urban kids as rich urban kids, you know, whatever. We want to make sure that it's as fair as possible. So if you have any ideas or if any callers have any ideas, uh, let me know. And just in case I made some glaring mistake of logic in here, please know this is coming from a place of, of good faith. I really enjoyed the episode, and I I see the problem, and I see that it's systemic, and I want it to change. I just, one of the things your show has taught me, Jay, is that a poor argument is an argument that doesn't offer a solution after the criticism is made. And well, the one thing I didn't hear in that episode, aside from opt-out, was I didn't hear a solution for a plausible reform that could be implemented. And, and I'm curious to learn as much about this as I can, because I'm soon going to be in a position where I'll have a small amount of influence in, into how one small school is run. So thanks, Bo. Keep it up, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So Chris from Colorado Springs gives me lots of things I, I feel like I want to respond to. And, you know, I'm no expert on education policy, so I'll fill in with some broad strokes, but I really do hope that some experts will call in and and give a much better answer than I'm capable of. Uh, first of all, just an interesting note that I graduated high school in, you know, with the class of 2001, and you may know or had heard somewhere that it's the class of 2002 and beyond that was required to take this, this first round of these high-stakes testing with the implementation of No Child Left Behind. And so I don't have direct experience taking these tests where you have to take the test in order to graduate high school, but I was there when it was being implemented. I was in school when the rumors were floating around and we were, you know, sort of coming to an understanding that this was coming down the pipeline. And so I'll tell you that I, I remember from the time that it, it was like a, you know, a hero in a movie who's in a building that is exploding and they're running for the front door and obviously they're going to make it just in the nick of time and they dive to the side uh, just as a fireball explodes out the door behind them, you know, barely missing them. That is what it felt like to have these tests uh, sort of looming over the school, but knowing that I was just going to miss having to take them. So I, I felt pity for everyone in the country who was younger than me at the time. So I can only imagine what it would be like to have those tests every year and have them be high stakes and, and all of that stuff. So as I mentioned in the activism segment of that show, the testing itself is not exactly the problem. It's the high stakes that are creating all of these terrible incentive structures and creating all this pressure and mental trauma for the students. So, you know, as I think Chris was saying, you know, we need to sort of track people, see how they're doing, but we don't need 11 hours of testing and we don't need for it to be tied to teacher pay and student advancement and all of those things. So, that, you know, that's one part of it where a good idea or, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It made some degree of sense. This is sort of what John Oliver was saying, like, it seemed like a good idea, but you implement it and it has terrible ramifications. So, OK, we have to come up with something else. Another point that 
you know, with these tests, apparently the way they're implemented now, the teachers don't actually get the scores back. They, they There's no way to take the results of the test and integrate them back into the teaching strategy. So you don't, you don't get to, you know, that's the biggest point of why teachers give any sets of tests so they can see how their students are doing. And then if all, you know, if all the students get the same question wrong, well, then they know, all right, this is what we need to focus on. And so with these standardized tests, we're, we're tracking people, but that information isn't going back into the teaching process. So, you know, that's a big part of it, something that needs to be fixed. And then just in a general sense, to Chris's point about what we're trying to do here, how we're trying to sort of standardize education across the country and, you know, give sort of equal opportunity and, and equal support to everyone. That's sort of the, the idea behind Common Core. And most of the people I've heard talk about it say it's very well intentioned, has a lot of good aspects to it. It's just being implemented poorly. And the biggest part of it that is detracting from its overall general good idea is the high stakes testing. So it's not like we have to go back to the drawing board and you know nothing in the reform movement is doing anything right at all. You know, I mean like there are a lot of people making decent strides, but there have just clearly been some missteps. Now to take a, an even further step back about just the quality of education in general, you know, my immediate suggestions are you got to disconnect school funding from property taxes. Seems like the most obvious thing on the planet that if you live in a poor area, then you get a poorly funded school, which is exactly backwards. You know, the, the people who maybe need the most help because they start off in economic hardships get the least because of the school district they're in. So that's completely messed up. You know, and then pay teachers more, like completely transform the profession, make it a prestigious vocation that people actually really aspire to and they have to compete to get into. So you end up with better teachers that way. I, I would much rather have a positive vision for getting good teachers rather than this negative vision we have right now where we kind of let, you know, if you want to become a teacher, you can pretty much do it. And then there's this, you know, wolf pack going around all the time trying to figure out how to fire teachers. My understanding from the countries where they have incredibly effective uh, educational systems is they just invert that. They make it pretty difficult to become a teacher. And then if you make it, you get paid a lot of money. And then they don't have those problems where they have to figure out how to weed out all the bad teachers you because you just don't have that many bad teachers because they they had to work so hard to get to where they were. So th those are just my sort of broad strokes uh, thoughts on the education system. Like I said, I'm no expert. I hope someone uh, much smarter than me will call in and, and fill us in on more. Now on to th this is, uh, the moment of truth here. You know, so for the last month, I've been saying that it is not time to panic in regards to this fundraiser I'm doing. Well, today is the last episode of the month, and it is time to panic. So before we panic, the uh, many people have been donating. I have lots of people to thank. So uh, th thank you very much to Aaron, another anonymous donation, Clyde, another anonymous, another anonymous, Gretchen, Yvonne, two more anonymous donations, Scott, Rob and Elaine, Maria, Brian, Aaron, Karen, Edward, and Elizabeth. 
the support has been fantastic. It, you know, the donations are continuing to flow in. Right now, we are at 57% of my goal, which is a fine number, but not one of my favorite numbers like last time. Uh, we have $2,160 remaining. That is what I'm trying to raise in three days as of this moment I'm recording. So I, I, I did the math. That's Just listen to how easy this is. 86 and a half people donate 25 bucks and we're there. I don't know if you've seen 86 people in a group. It's not very many people. And $25, although you know you, you could probably come up with a better uh, idea of what you'd want to spend 25 bucks on. But if you ask yourself, could I donate 25 bucks to a good cause because I'm being asked by a podcast host who, you know, has done some okay things and seems like an okay guy, like, you probably could. So if you find yourself in that position and you think to yourself, could I be one of 86 and a half people to donate 25 bucks? Now is the time to do it. It's going to come down to the wire, but that is what makes it exciting. Uh, so as I've been saying all month, please just head to bestoftheleft.com. Click on the giant climate hike banner uh, you'll see there. It gives the whole detail of the hike that I'm going on and you know why I'm raising money and so forth. So thanks again to everyone who has donated and to those uh, 86 and a half people who will be donating $25 in the next three days or so. Now that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories and Stories and one